We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land on which we are recording today. We would also like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are listening today. It all started 10 years ago in my kitchen. I asked my family what about energy ratings, and after a short pause, it was yes, yes, and yes. Hi, my name's Jonathan Tavella, founder of Freighter Consulting Services, director of Sustainability Tech Partners, and co-host of this podcast, which we've aptly named Sustainabible. It's a series of episodes which aims to equip you, the listener, with the knowledge I've gathered on my journey. We'll be speaking with industry leaders that have a pivotal role in the sustainability movement. It's all about joining the dots for you. Joining the dots indeed. And as you've just heard, Jonathan has a wealth of experience under his belt when it comes to sustainability and the building industry. Me, not so much. Hi, I'm Neary Tai and I'll be the co-host on this podcast. Jonathan, my friend, has roped me along and hopefully will learn a thing or two on this sustainable journey. So if you're like me and want to build a dream home one day that's more environmentally friendly, hopefully by the end of this series, you'll be more informed and equipped to do so. This is Sustainable. Did you know there are only around 50 passive house certified buildings in Australia? Did you ever wonder who was one of the first to build them? We did. Meet Trent Clark from Cedar Constructions, a Sydney-based builder who specialises in sustainable building practices. Trent takes us beyond the four walls, exploring the importance of good craftsmanship and the science behind it all. Trent Clark from Red Cedar Constructions, thanks for joining us today. No problems at all. Tell us a little bit about your company and why you decided to go down this sustainability path. Red City Constructions was uh, founded in 2004. Uh, it was just myself at the time and uh, about 07, my brother joined us and we're still uh, together. Uh, even though brothers can fight, we uh, seem to make <laughs> it work somehow. It works well. You've got all that trust there and we sort of stick in our own lanes and I've got my role and he's got his role. We originally sort of started out doing a lot of architectural building work for a um, architect out of Sydney that was sort of focused in that sustainable area using a lot of you know natural timbers, passive solar involved in a lot of their design. So when you say pa- passive solar, what, what do you mean by passive solar? So utilising the sun's movement throughout the day to make sure that you sort of, you know, got your nice big windows on the north, you don't have much window or much glazing in the, on the south, trying to use concrete and heat up the concrete as a bit of thermal mass. So you sort of... Thermal mass. Thermal mass. We've heard this before. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we have a running joke. As soon as, as soon as we hear thermal mass, it's like, ah, oh, here we go. <laughs> but it's it's clearly quite important. You're basically just using nature to sort of help make and maintain the heat in the building. So we're doing a lot of that stuff. You know, we were using double glazed windows back then as well, although it wasn't sort of as prevalent in every design because a lot of the time it became a bit cost prohibitive back then. Mm. And then unfortunately, in about 2012, 2013, maybe it was a little bit later than that, the lady we're doing a lot of our work for actually decided that she'd stop architecture and just go into consulting. So we're like, oh, we don't really know what else to do with uh, the sustainable stuff. 
Um, so we started asking around, and I don't know how we stumbled across Passive House, mm. but as soon as I saw it and started reading about it, I was like, oh, this is just simple, smart engineering at its best. Mm. I also felt like there was a little bit of validation in like a builder being able to hand over a place that he could actually show the client that, yep, I've handed over a home that's going to perform to this standard. Yep. So like I've always sort of thought, oh, well, I've been told to put R2 in the walls for insulation, but like did it go in properly? Is it actually working to an R2? Is it, you know, how do I fully quantify that to the client? But and here is just I'm gesturing in like, silence. What's R2? I'm like, what, what's an R2? Do I ask what an R2 is? What's an R2? <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally looking at Johnny go, do I ask? What, <laughs> are, are people supposed to know this? <laughs> sure, sure. So the, the value of any insulation has an R value and it's the thermal rating on it. As you go up, the greater the thermal rating, the better it is, generally speaking, According to basics, we need to put about R2 in the walls and about R3, R4 in the ceilings. Going from what we had to do according to basics and then going into passive house, we started to realise that like being in Sydney, we do have a bit of a temperate climate, so it's not a huge stray from what we currently require from where we were to where we need to get for passive house. So in that instance, like there's not a huge amount of net increase on overall cost for insulation in particular. Right, yep, yep. It's one of the lower costing initiatives for ESD. Right. As versus insulation versus glass. So you're basically a passive house builder, right, Trent? So so we all projects will be passive house by the end of next year. Oh wow. How does a passive house builder, I guess, differ from a normal regular builder? My brother and I went to Melbourne to do our accreditation because that's where the Box Hill Institute of TAFE um, down in Melbourne was um, only holding it at that stage. Yep. So we did our accreditation down there, did our, did our course, did our um, test and passed and then came up here and um, interestingly, our client at the time heard about it and he's a scientist and he was all over it once we told him about it. So he said, you know, how do we go about changing my house into a passive house? And that's what became Sydney's first passive house. Oh, I was about to ask oh. you, you constructed Sydney's first passive house. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so that that was how that project evolved. And that was a renovation, was it? No, brand new. Okay, yep. A brand new home that sat between an extremely busy road and a railway line that has country league trains and, you know, coal carriages and things like that. So the amount of noise that this home is subjected to is incredible. So that's another reason for passive house as well with just such a great noise control. So what did you end up doing with that house? Like what? how did you sort of go about it? Well, the interesting thing about passive house is realistically there's only those five principles that we have to implement. So Which are? Insulation, glazing, the airtight wrap, my HRV unit, which is a heat recovery ventilation unit. And then the last one is thermal bridges. And in a new home, thermal bridges can just be designed out of the design or easily made to work. So in other words, I don't want a piece of steel that goes from inside the building to outside the building because that steel is going to conduct heat and cold in and out of the building and affect the internal temperature of that home. So from a design perspective, what would a regular home fail at in terms of thermal bridging? Um, aluminium windows because they have an aluminium trim that runs all the way around each piece of glass that sort of goes inside to outside. 
if you want an aluminium windows, you have to get thermally broken windows to change that. How does a thermally broken window change that? They actually put a piece of rubber in between the two pieces of aluminium. Gotcha. So you've got the aluminium externally and internally, and then there's a rubber grommet that's in between that window. It's an expensive rubber grommet, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, so that, that's that's really good. Yep. Yeah, and then steel-wise, like from an architectural point of view, if you have nice big steel beam that you know, want to make prevalent in the design, that might go in, inside the building to outside the building. If you still want that, where the wall frame intersects that piece of steel, we actually put different, well, there's many different options, but once again, some kind of grommet there that's going to stop the continuation of that steel going through but still hold the structure. So there's a, there's a lot of discussions with how the engineer wants us to do it, but there's many different ways to skin that cat. And you mentioned insulation, which we've quickly touched on before, but in a passive house, what does insulation sort of look like? So R2 in the walls is still basically all we need. We still need insulation in the uh, ceiling as well or on the roof, depending on where you want to put it. And generally that's probably another one to two R values higher in the scheme of the cost of the build. Yep. It's you know, talking $1,000 max. Over a whole house, yeah. Yep. So minimum insulation in the walls is probably R1.5, maximums R2.7. Yep. And in your ceilings, you could probably start at R2.5, geez, that'd be low, but you could start there and you can go up to R7, I think. Bradford have a... Have a product? Yeah. Basically, we end up every, and it's always different for every climate and every location, but all of the Sydney-based homes that we've done have always had an R2.5 wall insulation and about an R5 to R5.5 in the roof. Yeah, that's that's pretty fair. And most new, new homes would actually have that anyway, so I wouldn't yep. even classify that an upgrade per se. For, yeah, exactly. Uh, air tightness. Yeah. What do you have to achieve under that initiative? So, and this is where um, I talk about how I really do get that tick of approval to say to the client, I've given you a home that, that I told you I'd build for you is because I need to wrap the building. Now, the way I do that can be done a dozen different ways, which is always a great thing about passive houses, not just one rule fits everything. So I can use a fabric that's airtight, a concrete or a cement rendered brick wall is airtight, concrete floor, obviously airtight. So I just need to make sure that it's a really simple thing that they talk about. You, you need to look at a piece of paper and never lift your pencil off the page and basically go all the way around and come back to where you started. Mm. And if you, don't, if you do that, then you've obviously got an airtight layer. And that's floors, walls and roof, the whole The whole, whole shebang. Yep. Yeah, obviously where the doors are, I tape onto those doors. I tape onto the windows. If it's a concrete slab, we'd come down the walls, tape onto the slab. And when you say tape on, tape on, what's what's taping on? So we've got basically a whole series of um, fabric membrane tapes oh, that okay. are airtight. So we obviously just tape that membrane to. Um, and basically anywhere where we have material joining another material, whether it's one substrate to another or one membrane to another, I need to obviously tape that joint. So for our listeners, would that can they think of that taping as like caulking, like sealing the two materials together? So you, you you do use cork in certain instances, but they're probably extremely localized areas. So for instance, where my electrician or my plumber would have to go through with their pipes or their wires, we would set up and have a chat early on about where they're going to put all those. We know that they're going to need to penetrate the, the membrane somewhere. And we would say, all right, we're going to 
go through here, we would simply place, we actually cut the membrane tape in such a way that it sort of flares out and we actually then tape that to either the cable or the pipe. And then we also use a particular airtight corking that simply seals that last bit off. Why is it so important to have everything airtight? The heat outside, the cold outside is what's making us not be happy with our temperature inside. Yeah. So if we're 45 degrees outside and that air keeps on changing inside the house, we're going to need to keep on conditioning that space. So realistically, if I can make sure that none of the ambient temperature outside is affecting my inside, then I'm basically now all I've got to do is treat inside with the people that are inside and maintain that Inside environment with my HRV. We've spoken about star ratings, energy ratings and the like. Effectively, your overall goal is to minimise the heat transfer from outside inside. Mm. So the longer it takes for the heat or the cold to get from outside to inside, the better performing the envelope of the house is and that actually helps your energy rating. So as Trent alluded to, you make it airtight you're really restricting that. And something that Trent mentioned earlier as well about actually fitting products properly, Mm. he used the example of R2 in a wall. R2 in a wall fitted properly achieves R2. R2 in a wall fitted incorrectly with gaps around it and it's not covering Mm -hmm. the full face of the wall. The effectiveness drops substantially to the point where it's almost worth it not even being Being in there. there. Okay, so installation is... As important, important as the product yep. itself. So when you have craftsmen like Trent understanding these elements and how important they are to be built properly, mm. you do end up with the desired result as opposed to just throw it in there, move on, mm. and it being rendered useless. Yep. Okay, so yeah, Trent, can we, go, can, can we go into air tightness and its relationship with ventilation? It's this sort of seesaw where... You want to have a house completely wrapped, but then good passive design enables ventilation through the house to obviously cool during the warmer months. How do passive house certified buildings address that? Yeah, sure. And that's the fifth or fourth uh, principle of passive houses, which is the HRV unit. And so that heat recovery ventilation unit basically runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can't think of it as an air conditioner. It's simply to condition the space using fresh air being pulled in from outside. It goes through the HRV unit, then it gets pushed to all of the living spaces, bedrooms, and all those spaces that you know we generally spend a lot more time in. We then have our extract side, which is come, taken from all of our utility sides, so kitchen, bathrooms, and laundry. And those sides generally have heat or steam from cooking. We have condensation and steam from showering, steam or you know condensation from the laundry. And so all of that, plus us, plus TV, plus anything that's producing energy or using energy is obviously heat. And that extract side is then going back to the HRV unit. And what it does is it offloads all of the heat, the units we use at about 93% efficiency. Once it's a flow of the heater, then just goes outside the building. And so that circle just keeps on going all day and night. And so you don't have any issues with condensation. Mm. If you have condensation or, you know, mold or anything like that in a passive house, there's something drastically wrong with what's going on in the home. Okay. So this unit... Is that specifically for a passive house only? You could put one in. And this is a great thing about passive homes is that 
you can go to the full accreditation, do the blower door test, and that's blower door testing basically is where I put a canvas door in the front door, pump up the house to 50 pascals, and I must get an air change per hour of 0.6 or under. The average Sydney home at the moment is about 15 plus. Wow. We've got to get to 0.6. Whoa. (laughs) That's epic. So essentially it's they pump air into the house and they test how much it's leaking. Right. It, that's exactly. exactly in layman's terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you, like, you had another yeah. one of those R2 looks on your face. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. what is this pumping business? Okay, I got it. Okay, so um, <laughs> is this system, is it an electric system, gas system? Electric. Okay. Could it be installed in a home alongside an air conditioner or heater? What we do find in Sydney is that we need a, an air conditioner just to knock off those really extreme days yep. because if we're getting 40 degrees three, four days in a row, the efficiency of the system, even if you sort of get that afternoon sort of spell, it still doesn't, even if we, because the system has a bypass in it, so if the temperature outside is actually cooler than the temperature inside, there's actually a bar, bypass system in it, but it'll actually just open up and it just flushes itself. Yep. But generally speaking, yeah, you can in Sydney have it where you just can't keep on top of that heat coming in. And so we're allowed to put in just a small air conditioning unit just to take that edge off. And is it something that there's a vent in every room? There is, yeah. There must be a vent in every room. And basically you're trying to cycle every bit of the volume in that air, either if you're supplying or extracting, you've got them at the far, furthest distance from the door. So you're trying to really, really flush all that volume of air in the whole building. Is it an infrastructure that's put traditionally in the floor or underneath the slab or is it something that runs in the roof cavities? Always in the roof. Is that because heat rises? Exactly, yeah. Dumb question, but... No, that's question. good. These are, I was just like, so let, my mind. Let, let's hit... And, the, and just to... And for Neri's question about it, can it be put into a um, a home that's not passive? Yep. Yes, you can. Oh, thank you for remembering my question as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, once you, I just realised I got a bit sidetracked. Sidetrack. Um, jo- Johnny's distracting you. <laughs> <laughs> um, once you get above, which I don't even know where it will become too inefficient, but my guess is at about three air changes per hour, you would be just be sort of wasting the money that you would spend on installing it. Yeah. Maybe it would be a little bit higher than that because we've been told and, and no one can answer this question yet because I think it's and it's up for a bit of up for grabs at the moment but we don't have the solid answer as to at what air changes per hour a home actually needs a HRV right. so that you don't get condensation. So if it's at three air changes per hour, you would probably need one because you're so airtight that the moisture wouldn't be getting away and therefore yep. you'd start getting mould. But, you know, probably at seven or eight, you, you wouldn't have an issue. In terms of pricing, which of the initiatives sort of cost the least to cost the most? Oh, the Out of the yeah, insulation, yeah. glazing, yeah. HRV and, and, the, and the products behind them and, and, and the building methodology on site as well. A thermal bridge should just be ruled out in a new home. So realistically, that could be the cheapest than the installation. Just to throw a small spanner in the works if you are going to renovate. Spanner in the works from a builder, <laughs> eh? How about that? <laughs> we've, got, uh, we've, got, <laughs> we've got three passive house renovations on at the moment, so they're actually called an Enerfit. They're not called a passive house. They're called a what, sorry? They're called an Enerfit, E-N-E-R-P-H-I-T. Yep. The P-H in the middle is obviously uh, capitalised for passive house. Ah, Thermal bridges are obviously going to be something you you need to just 
work with because you just know you're going to come across them because you're dealing with an existing building and you need to either we've got about um, the job in Helston Park has 20 different thermal bridges that we're having to deal with at the moment so yeah they become a bit costly obviously but it's just one of those things that the client had the moral decision not to knock the home over, but you know knew that they had the budget to fix those thermal bridges. But just going back to your um, question, John, so I'd say zero for uh, thermal bridges. Insulation is definitely the next. So obviously, we've got the HRV unit, we've got the airtight wrap, and then we've got the glazing. I would probably say HRV, airtight wrap. They could be one or the other, depending on what one, how you're going to airtight things. And then windows would definitely be the most expensive item. The heating system, roughly, what would someone be looking at? So on a three, four bedroom home, you're probably looking fully installed, purchased about $20,000, bit, bit over $20,000. For the same house, let's say 20 squares, for an airtight perspective, what sort of costing are you looking at on that? I don't know the answer to that because that's sort of, not a set number I would know because that, that, the, the HRV unit, that's a number that I get from the supplier that yep. I know in my head, whereas the insulation and the line, uh, and the membranes are all bulked in together the way I quote, so I don't know the answer to that. Glazing? You'd go anywhere from about forty to $80,000, I would you know, put as a number. So the best outcome would be timber frame? Well, the, the UPVC would still give you that ultimate performance, but it would just cost a lot less. That's actually, that's really good advice. Basically, the good thing is that you've got a level for your budget in each of those still getting the double glaze unit that gives you extremely great sealing because obviously those seals need to be extremely tight to get me in my air tightness. You know, all, all these windows too aren't just a stock standard sliding window either. You know, that's out the window when we're talking about the windows that we put in there, you know, tilt and turn windows. So you have three different functions. So you'll have either it closed you can have it just tilted where it'll sit back in at 150 mil at the top so you have a little bit of an opening or you can have the window fully open up and it actually hinges. So that's for windows and then doors, there's you know, many, many different options in the doors as well. To wrap it up, what are some takeaway sort of concepts or initiatives or practices or procedures that you would want our listeners to take away from this if they were looking to design and build a passive house? Or well, even some tips. Yeah. Doing the things that matter, like that you can't change later on, like you know, spending the money on double glazed windows, spending the money on insulation, those sorts of things, just mean that you're not turning your 20 kilowatt air conditioning unit on all the time. But then going to that passive house specific stuff, even if you can't build a passive house, like trying to get those air chains down, the HRV units that you can put in, you don't have to go to a full system like I've been discussing over this chat. You can use decentralized units. So there's these little units that you can put in the walls and they can be retrofit and they sort of work in unison. They sort of one pushes and one pulls across a room. And so, you know, you can start trying to tighten up the building and, you know, making that home. And, and it's not just from an energy perspective of, and, and therefore saving yourself money, but it's also just the, the health of the actual home inside as well because that home's being, you know, purified of that air you know, constantly. So, and that, that's really where Passive House comes in its own. It's really about the life, the health of the home and, and its occupants. Beautiful. Good stuff, Trent. No worries. Wealth of knowledge, my friend. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> no worries at all. 
Thanks for listening to Sustain a Bible. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Click on the links for more information on the topics we've discussed today. Thank you.